Uh, it's really great to be with you here today at this EU public meeting. About 20 years ago, I studied history here at Sydney Uni uh, and now work as a local Anglican minister. And it's always great, real joy to be invited back by the EU to speak. Um, a special shout out, I think, to first years. Well done on getting here. Uh, back in 2003, when I was the first year, I didn't realize the EU existed until about week six. So, well done on being here. And there's probably other people like me, clueless people walking around campus who don't know the EU exists but would love it. <clears throat> so, if you know of someone in your from church or from high school or from life, make sure you let them know that EU exists because odds are they haven't heard about it. Um, I have a really annoying surname. Moffat. It's only seven letters long, but for some reason people always manage to misspell it. Is it one T? Is it one F? Is it Moffat? Or is it Moffit? Or Moffit? Like, what the flip? Um, so I guess, I get, I, get, I get that it's not your standard white person name. Um, it's actually a surname with a bit of complicated history. Uh, it comes from Scotland. There's a small little Scottish town in the English border called Moffat, M-O-F-F-A-T, even they spelled it wrong, um, where it seems like for generations the Moffats lived very happily, mostly stealing sheep off the English. Um, but the thing is, as far as we can work out, my family didn't come from Scotland. Our best guess is that the Moffats um, they came from Ireland to Australia, and our best guess is that at some point in the late 1500s or early 1600s, my Moffat forebears were part of the British and Protestant colonization of Northern Ireland. And as soon as I say that, a bunch of you will start to have <clears throat> a range of different images flash into your head. Images of barricades and murals, bombs and marches, they all begin to flash through your mind because in living memory during this period that's known as the Troubles, uh, people who claimed to be Christian, they taunted and they kidnapped, they murdered and they bombed each other. The blood-stained history of Catholics versus Protestants in Northern Ireland feels a long way from the message of love and peace and unity that, that was just read for us from John 17. Northern Ireland, in many ways, I think, epitomizes the issue that we're considering today. Church divisions, hostility between Christians. Why are there so many churches? And it turns out it's not just the Northern Irish problem. Um, according to the World Christianity Encyclopedia, which is a legit publication put out by Oxford University Press, in 2001, there were 33,000 denominations in the world. 33,000. I can count 33 denominations maybe, but 33,000? That's unfathomable. Um, on the surface of things, just look at this, global Christianity has never looked more divided. Um, some of this is kind of understandable, I think, when you consider for a moment how many countries in the world Christianity is present in and how many different language groups have their own church. But the number is also really large because somewhere along the way, someone decided to start their own denomination because, well, they didn't like the music at their local church. 
or they had a fight with someone and couldn't go back, or they just really wanted to make a name for themselves. And it's easy to imagine denominations proliferating like this in a country like America. Out of this 33,000, about 20,000 of them are independent churches, churches that just exist on their own and don't have any kind of connection to any other church. And they, <clears throat> they technically count as a denomination. But actually, it happens all around the world. Um, to pick on the country of my Moffat forebears again, Scotland. Uh, Scotland doesn't have a huge population, 5 million people, slightly smaller than Sydney. But for those 5 million people, Scotland has seven different Presbyterian churches. There's, of course, the official church, the state church, the Church of Scotland. But then there's also the Free Church of Scotland, the Free Church of Scotland continuing. And you have to stress that word continuing, otherwise you get into a fight. Um, the United Free Church, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the Associated Presbyterian Church, and then the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. It's a shame there's no United Free Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Uh, there used to be another group that's now shut down. They were called the Original Successionist Church of Scotland, which is such a weird flex. You're going to own the name Originist, but there you go, uh, Successionist. Um, this is a mess. And can you imagine all the sniping and bickering that has led to this? All the breakdown in trust, all the ending of fellowship, all the duplicity that meant that Christians couldn't meet together anymore. And it's a story that's repeated in Christian circles right around the world. Instead of peace, instead of unity, instead of solidarity, Christians around the world look as tribal and as sectarian as every other part of humanity. And it doesn't just happen at an institutional level. It can happen at a very real and personal level as well. Christians can have a lot of contempt for people that they spend every Sunday with. The self-interest, the factionalism, the backroom deals that you might expect to see in a political party or in a sporting club or on the school playground at recess, they all play themselves out in the church as well. And it's not very attractive, is it? It's kind of gross, kind of ugly. It feels a long way from what was read for us from John 17 when Jesus prays that all of them may be one. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this reality? And especially if you're someone who's checking out the Christian faith, what do you make of this? What do you do with it? Why the heck are there so many different Christian churches? Is this another example of how religion poisons everything? I think there are perhaps a couple of options you could try to pursue. You might decide that this actually doesn't matter very much, that churches and splits, that's just what churches do. Churches and splits go together like Vegemite and Sayo, Steve Smith and Cricket, Ash and Pikachu. It, it might maybe a sad, possibly tragic, that churches be churches, and so churches are going to split. The only problem with that approach is that when you read the New Testament, it seems to care a lot about Christians and churches being united. So here's a few examples from the letter to the Ephesians. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Or again, slightly later, 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So saying that church unity doesn't matter very much doesn't seem to be very tenable. A second option is you could decide that this actually does matter quite a lot and that it raises huge questions over the plausibility and believability of Christianity. Did Jesus actually know what he was praying for when he prays this? Because it seems like Christians just can't stay together. They have to fight, it looks like. Um, If you were listening carefully to when we just listened uh, and read John 17 earlier, you would have heard that Jesus is kind of sympathetic to that view. Because Jesus says that based on the unity and love that Christians are to have for one another, the world will know that God has sent Jesus to save us. And if you can't see love, if you can't see unity, if this isn't the case, then that at the very least should give us pause for thought. Uh, Let me suggest to you today that the Christian divisions that we see at both an institutional level and a personal level, they're actually symptomatic of a bigger problem. There's another story at play here. Because divisions, you know, division is not just a Christian experience. It's a very common human phenomenon. And instead of making excuses for Christian divisions, what Jesus offers us is a unity which overcomes human frailty and vainglory, the reasons that Christians divide. He offers us instead a unity that's based in truth and love for one another, a unity which goes beyond kind of bureaucratic or formal unity, and yet also gives us space to be different, that doesn't smother us with an imposed uniformity. But to think about why there is division, we need to think a little bit about something that's maybe a little bit abstract, and this is my perhaps my arts background, the train itself. We need to think about the concept of alienation. Uh, it turns out that, prepare yourself for this, this might be a little bit shocking, Karl Marx was right. Karl Marx, founder of communism, if you hadn't heard of him. In the 19th century, you, you may know that Uh, In industrial Britain, he was looking around at society and worked out that things didn't quite work. There was all this tension and hostility and division between the working class and those who owned the factories. And what Marx identified as the problem was alienation, that the workers had been alienated from their work by capitalism. And it's the same kind of alienation that we're looking at today to explain why churches divide from, from one another. Except that Marx was only half right. Because Marx, Marx saw that alienation was a real thing, but he saw that that kind of alienation was produced by economic and political reasons. When the Bible talks about alienation, it says that it goes beyond economics and politics. Alienation in the Bible is profoundly spiritual. We're alienated right almost from the very beginning in the Bible from each other, from the world around us, from ourselves, and from God. And we see it in our communities, in our workplaces and schools, even in our families. And it's a pain that's not felt just uniquely by Christians, because whether it's between Shia and Sunni, North Korea versus South Korea, the Shire versus the North Shore, we all at some level (laughs) 
we all at some level experience this reality of alienation. And that's true even in this age, where in many ways we've never been more connected. I can call someone in Campbelltown and not have to leave the inner west. We've never been more connected. And yet Australians are saying they've never felt more isolated. We're lonely. And the Bible says that this alienation has haunted humanity from the very beginning and it affects each one of our lives, our relationships, the communities that we belong to. And one of the particular ways that it manifests itself is through hostility to one another. Because when we're alienated from each other, we become threats to one another. We can experience the spiritual alienation in many ways. Hostility, exclusion, division, And the Apostle Paul, writing in his letter to the Ephesians, can point to spiritual alienation as the reason why there was a division between those who belonged to God's promises, those who were on the inside and close to God, the nation of Israel, and those he calls the Gentiles, those who were far away and those who were on the outside. Paul says, writing about the Gentiles, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. It's a pretty stark prognosis, right? To be utterly hopeless, utterly cut off from God. And yet Paul's grand news is that Jesus has come into the world to tear down that division and to heal us from those divisions, from that exclusion and alienation, particularly those between Jew and Gentile. He says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has come to heal our divisions. And boy, don't we need his healing, don't we? Because we live in a world where almost by default we feel excluded and divided. We never quite feel like we belong. We're not ever fully at home in this world. I can remember in first year walking down Eastern Avenue one day, very first couple of weeks of first semester and being just overwhelmed by how anonymous I was here on campus. I felt excluded and it was miserable. It wasn't like when I was in high school and had been bullied and excluded from three years. This was something totally different, but it utterly sucked. I remember asking myself questions as I walked down Eastern Ave. What am I doing here? Why am I studying an arts degree? That's not the reason why I felt that. (laughs) Maybe I should drop out. I was totally, utterly alone even though there were 35,000 other students around me. I was totally disconnected from them. We feel the pang of exclusion and alienation like that because the Bible says we're actually made for so much more. But the story of divisions between Christians is part of this same story. It's utterly tragic that in Northern Ireland, both Protestant and Catholic identity was co-opted to kill people. That in South Africa, 
Christians from black and white backgrounds were divided against one another. <clears throat> and there are other examples that we could look at, aren't there, where ego and pride or external pressure on the church have divided Christians from one another. And it's totally tragic when alienation and hostility separate God's people. It's something to be owned up to, to be lamented of, repented of. And yet at the same time, it doesn't surprise us because we live in a world where we do still build physical walls to keep each other out, like in Berlin and maybe in Mexico. And we also build metaphysical walls to keep each other out, to keep our distance from each other, like racism and sexism. So if this is the world that we live in, a world scarred by division, what Jesus offers us is pretty significant. The context here for John 17, Jesus is praying for his followers. But this is no ordinary prayer. <clears throat> um, Jesus, in less than 24 hours, is going to taste death. He's about to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And Jesus knows it. And so for his closest followers who are there with him, this is the closest they'll get to hearing the last words of Jesus. So this is, this is a big moment. What does he want to say? What does Jesus want to pray for? It turns out that Jesus is not only thinking of those who are physically present with him there. From verse 20, Jesus actually starts to pray for every person who will ever follow him, for every man and woman who will ever claim Jesus as their Lord ever. If you are a Christian person here today, this was Jesus' prayer for you 2,000 years ago, the night before he died. This is a big prayer. Jesus is praying for people down the centuries. And so what is the thing that Jesus wants most of all for his people? It's there in verse 21, that all of them may be one father, just as you and I, just as you are in me and I am in you. Or again in verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. What Jesus wants and what Jesus actually offers is unity, that elusive unity that we all seem to find so hard to hold on to. That Christians would be one in love and unity. But we need to stop and ask, I think, what is this unity? What's Jesus offering? Because there is a kind of traditional understanding of this passage that in John 17, Jesus is talking about the idea that all Christians should belong to the same church, or at least the same denomination. I don't think there's a building big enough for us to fit into. And there's a really big push in the 20th century to merge churches together because of these words of Jesus that denominations seem to fly in the face of what Jesus is talking about here. And that might be why some of us feel an anxiety about the existence of denominations as a thing. But that can't be quite what Jesus is talking about. Surely not. Because if that's what Jesus meant, then the kind of unity that Jesus is offering when you force everyone to come together is a unity by committee, an administrative unity, a bureaucratic unity. 
And if that was the basis of church unity, what instead would happen would be bland, suppressive uniformity. Because that has been the case when churches have, de- uh, have merged together, have ended the de- denominations and have come together. How this pressure to maintain this unity, everyone's forced to do the same thing, to say the same thing, to sing the same songs every Sunday. That's bland and it startles for distinctiveness and difference. And actually, it leads back again to more alienation. Jesus is not talking about that. And I think that's why a lot of Christians are actually pretty chilled about denominations and even the existence of denominations. They might be annoying. Sometimes they emerge for good reasons, sometimes not. But the actual existence of different denominations in and of itself isn't a blockage to our faith. Because sometimes sometimes a new church will emerge because well, Christian men and women, they took a stand against falsehood and injustice and oppression in the church. Often when this has happened, they weren't imagining that they were starting something new. They set out to start a new denomination. It was out of a commitment to the truth because they clung to the words of Jesus that they resisted church decadence and oppression. And as a result, new local branches of Christianity emerged. And something like that happened in Europe 500 years ago in the period we know of as the Reformation. Sometimes a division will happen within the church for entirely good reasons, like enabling local and cultural distinctiveness. It's a really good thing that there are churches here in Australia for Indigenous Australians that don't try and force Aboriginal people to be 17th century Englishmen, that don't try to mimic Shakespearean English, but are instead sensitive to the linguistic and cultural context of Aboriginal Australia in 2020. Church denominations and church divisions, church networks can emerge for good reasons like that, to enable a multiplication of Christian communities, fruitful Christian communities. Not every denominational origin story is an evil thing. So alienation is still a problem, but alienation doesn't always equate with distinctiveness or difference. And when Jesus is talking about being united here, it means something beyond formal or bureaucratic unity. We have to say, though, as well, that this is not just mere rhetorical flourish. Jesus hasn't got lost in his words and talked about something that is impossible. That that can't be the case, right? Because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have prayed for it. And so it must be possible to have the kind of community that Jesus is praying about. It must be possible to have a community of love and unity, a community that shares the burdens of each other, that shares resources with one another, that carries one another's worries and anxieties and stresses, that looks out for one another and supports one another, that forgives one another and learns from their mistakes rather than deplatforming and excluding each other. A community that isn't threatened by difference and doesn't feel the need to coerce people into uniformity. 
Who wouldn't want a community like that? I don't know any human who wouldn't want a community like that. And it must be possible, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't pray for it. But it's not easy, and I, we get that. We get that it's not easy. So how do we get it? Because humans, because our default position is alienation, whenever we meet up with each other, what we naturally start to do is size each other up. We compare ourselves to each other. What school did you go to? Where do you live? Where are you interning? How many European countries have you been to? How many South American countries have you been to? How many retweets did you get? Or maybe at the moment particularly, what ATAR did you get? Ah, 99.5. You must be so proud. And you may or may not slip in that you got 99.8 after that. We compare ourselves to each other because we're actually working out how much of a threat we are to each other's self-worth. We compare each other on our looks, on our sophistication, or our lack thereof. We compare each other because we're alienated from each other. And it's the reason why our relationships are so sick. What Jesus offers us, and what the church is called to live out because this is just a reality given to us by Jesus, is a different way of being human, of doing community, and relating to one another. So look again at verse 23. Jesus says, Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. This is a unity that's not based on achievement or birth. It's not a unity that you can choose to have. It's not based on how healthy you are or how wealthy you are. It's not based on how much cred you have or recognition you get from others. It's not a unity based on liking the same interests, of having the same hobbies. This is not a unity based around the fact that you go cycling together, or all really into the office. This is a unity that's based only on the truth that God loves you and Jesus died for you. What unites Christians together is not whether they recognize the authority of the Pope or they baptize their babies. It's a unity that's not based on whether you have elders at your church or you meet together on Mondays instead of Sundays. Christian unity is not based on whether or not you use the King James Bible or listen to Colin Buchanan music. You might think that some of those things are important, but when any human standard or practice is used as the measure for church unity, for Christian community, what we do instead is create more disunity. We provoke comparison with one another. We inflame self-righteousness in our own hearts and it leads us back again to alienation. We exclude one another. If you get to know me, you learn pretty quickly that I'm a very happy Anglican. Um, I'm not sure if those words are meant to go together. The Anglican church is such a mess. Um, but it's true. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a walking oxymoron, but it's, it's true. There are lots of things about the Anglican way of doing things. It's tradition and doctrine and philosophy that I really appreciate. But if I start to take those things and use them against other Christians who aren't Anglican, if I use those things as a measure to judge other Christians, 
That's a massive fail on my part. That's a failure to love another brother or sister who Jesus died for. That's a denial of what Jesus is praying about here. Jesus says that the only thing that unites me to another Christian or to another church is not what I do or what she does, but what Jesus has done for us. It's his love for us that brings us together. It's his love for us, even though our churches might be very different, that allows us to work together. And the EU actually is a great example of this. The EU is owned by the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. It's Christian students coming together here at Sydney University to announce the good news of Jesus to this campus and to live that out in our lives. That's not what we do. It's not our interests that unite us together. It's God's love for us that brings us together. And this should be an astounding claim. This is the reason why the Christian faith doesn't collapse under the weight of 33,000 denominations. It actually, actually takes you into the very heart of Christianity. This is a claim that exposes you to the gospel. The heart of Christianity is not really about how much good you do so that you can get into heaven. The heart of Christianity is here in John 17. God loves you as much as he loves his own son. Do you believe that? If you're a Christian person, this very minute, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. He loves you so much that Jesus took on our alienation for himself. He left his home, he came in to our world, and he was reviled and rejected, going to the cross for our selfishness, for the way that we alienate ourselves from God and each other. And he did it so that instead of exclusion, instead of sin, we could know what it means to be included by his Father. Instead of alienation, we could be welcomed and embraced by the God who made everything. God loves you as much as he loves his son. And if you're someone who is checking out the Christian faith at the moment, or someone who's been hurt by Christians in the past, this is what Jesus offers you. Not a cool tribe to join, not another hobby or an interest group. He offers you a welcome into his family. He offers you the embrace of his God and Father. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And it's a transformative offer that Jesus offers us. Because the degree to which you know this, the degree to which it sinks down into your heart and fires your mind and fills your imagination, the degree to which you know this, to that degree will this reality shape the way that you relate to other people. It means that you can not abandon your differences and distinctiveness, but move past them in unity and love for one another. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he talks about this. Screwtape Letters is a, a fictionalized account of this master demon, Screwtape, mentoring a younger demon, Wormwood, in how to tempt a human, whose Screwtape refers to as a patient. And what Screwtape 
the older demon counsels is that there are two things that the, the younger demon needs to stop happening in the patient once the patient has joined the church. He needs to not develop, he needs to not cultivate the habits and the virtues of love and humility. Because without love, without humility, the patient may start to think that he's at church by virtue of his own right, his own prowess, his own superiority in some way. Isn't it good to be here? I'm so good, these people are so blessed to have me. And if that happens, then he'll never be able to relate to people who are different to him. There's too much at stake for his own ego. There's too much self-righteousness at work in his heart. But if the patient gets the gospel truth that God loves him as much as he loves Jesus, and he loves all these other people as well like that, then his membership of church won't be built on his pride. When he looks around the room, or looks across the road of the church that's different to his own, and sees people who are very different from him, total other freaks, don't look now because there are some of those people here, people that he would have had nothing to do with, he won't freak out himself because instead what he'll see are people that Jesus loves, people that Jesus died for. And so those divisions, those distinctiveness that Christians have for one another, they actually become an opportunity to cultivate more humility, more love for one another. And that's why even with 33,000 denominations or whatever, Jesus offers us the power to go beyond divisions, to go past pride and ego, past alienation and exclusion. And sometimes, sometimes we get to glimpse this in really beautiful, profound ways. As the church deals with past wrongs and seeks reconciliation and seeks to shake off alienation. Uh, in my lifetime, I think I've seen, seen it happen at least twice in Northern Ireland when the church got around the Good Friday Accords in 1998 and put to death the bickering and the hostility that different Christian communities felt towards one another. The church came together, not for the sake of their own little tribe, but for the good of all people. And it happened again in the 90s as well in South Africa when the church at the end of apartheid got together to bear witness um, to the unity and the love and truth that they had in Jesus and they backed the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission that ended apartheid in South Africa. These are both countries that have been riveted by decades of hostility and blood and exclusion. Both were places where the church stepped up and cultivated love and humility and pursued peace for everyone not just their own tribe. Now, we don't really have time to go into this, but I think there are at least two ways that you can test this out. The first, I think, is to read through the book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament after the four Gospels. Um, under periods of enormous pressure externally and both internally and facing various divisions, the book of Acts actually records for us the story of the early church living out the kind of community that everybody wants. They were generous with one another. They were inclusive with one another. And it wasn't just mere words. It wasn't just out of a sentimentality. They loved each other sacrificially at cost to themselves. 
And in fact, we know from ancient historians that one of the reasons why Christianity spread and grew as rapidly as it did was due to its radical inclusivity across racial and social and gendered boundaries. When Jesus is the gate, everyone can fit in there no matter what their background was. And this was totally radical. The world had never seen anything like it because up until that point, every religion was based in some way around race or nationality. You couldn't quite get in if you didn't have the right race or ethnic background. It was Christianity that first brought people together who would otherwise be enemies because of God's love for them. So you can read Acts to test it out. The other way to test it is to just go visit a church yourself, maybe even this Sunday. Because for all our faults, all our fractures and conflicts and splits, for all the schisms that have rent the church asunder, churches around the world remain the most inclusive communities on the planet. That might surprise you. You might imagine that churches are hotbeds for cultivating hatred and bigotry. But the global stats tend to show that churches are, particularly ordinary churches filled with ordinary people, the most welcoming and inclusive communities you could ever get involved in. Because when you know what it means to be truly alienated and excluded in life and then encounter the welcome and inclusion of God in Jesus Christ, then your heart can't help but melt and soften towards those who are different to you. It means you can own up to your own mistakes and your past failures. It means your sense of worth or value isn't risked by others being different to you. You can hold your differences humbly with real love for one another. If you know that God loves you, even when you are his enemy, then you're free to love even those who are your enemies. That's why the church is full of unnatural friends, people that socially or culturally, economically or politically should have nothing to do with each other. But those in Jesus Christ have been brought together because of his blood shed for them. We live in a city and we go to a university that is searching for a solution to the problems of acceptance and tolerance. We really do feel the alienation and exclusion of the world. It's not just something out there as an abstract concept. It's something we experience in our lives. For all our divisions, Christians have been living out these words of Jesus to love one another for two millennia. And so if you're searching for inclusion and embrace, give Jesus a try. Give Jesus a try. He offers you nothing less than the love of the one true and living God who made everything, including you.